Here we are on the first day of a new year. 2012 lies before us with 364 more days to use in some meaningful way, including half of the one we're on right now. For some reason, many people, if not most people in the world, feel compelled to make some plans to change the things that have not changed in the last 365 days. And uh, it's sort of like making a to-do list for the new year. Come on, there you go. I have a to-do list for this year. Uh, I'm going to get my other knee uh, partially replaced uh, on February 1st. I hope to complete two more classes, which will finish the master's degree I've been working on. I hope to build a gate to finish my fence, my backyard project that's been in the works for 10 years. (laughs) And I hope to work on this project, which has also been in the works for 10 years. (laughs) Going to get a witness there. Yeah, yeah. Now, one of those I know will get done for certain, which, uh, well, I shouldn't say that. I should say that the knee joint replacement will get done for certain. But, you know, the th- I, I have a to-do list on my desk, um, and I have them at home. Uh, I Every Monday, I write down everything I'm thinking about doing, and it's usually about three weeks' worth of work on my one day off. And uh, But you know what I love about a to-do list? Is that right there? I love putting that mark to it. Got her done, you know? And uh, on those rare occasions when you can get them all done or mostly done, wow, what a sense of accomplishment there is. And yet, as we face a new year and think about making that to-do list, that resolution list, the question we need to ask is, is it good enough just to get something done? Or or do we need to look at what we're attempting to do and say, is this what I really should be focusing on? Is this important? Is this the most important thing? What about us as a church? We look ahead and say, oh, we want this or we want that or we want the other. The question we need to ask is, are these the things that God wants us to do? And I think in order to get that list, we really need to go to the Scripture. And here in Philippians 1, verses 27 through 30, is a wonderful uh, passage, a challenging passage, that I think gives us some some things to put on our to-do list for the new year, both as individuals and as individuals that are part of the body of Christ here at First Baptist Church. Philippians 1.27, please follow as I read. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you a proof of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. God expects us in this passage to behave like believers. There's four things that I think he instructs us about, and they're all interrelated, and you'll see that as we get closer to the end of our time today. But the first thing that he says is, 
God expects us to act like believers. Look at verse 27. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, he's not telling us we need to earn salvation. He's not saying, do, you know, really act nice so that, so that uh, you can become saved. He's not saying that. He's saying that there is a behavior that, that should be true in our life because of our connection with the gospel. This is an important instruction, and that little word only in the New King James or in the, uh, in the NIV, the words, whatever happens, are translated from a Greek word that means only or, or exclusively. The NIV translation would leave you, lead you to believe that what Paul is concerned about is whether he's traveling to them or, or staying where he is. But the emphasis is really on the instruction And what Paul is saying is, I may come to you, and I may be able to visit and minister with you, or I may stay here. Whichever thing, whichever way that goes, here's what really matters. If I come to you, it matters. If I don't come to you, it matters. Here's what's really important. What's really important is that you, that your conduct, the way you live, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The focus of the instruction comes from the word conduct, and it's a fascinating word because it literally means to be a good citizen. The word polis, P-O-L-I-S, which we get politics from, uh, is in the middle of this word. And uh, if you you said it to a guy on the street in Philippi, if you said, be a good citizen, he would immediately think, oh, Philippi is a Roman colony, and I'm a Roman citizen, I'm supposed to act like a Roman citizen would act. It's a word he would be familiar with. Here, it's, it has to do with a different group. It's not about the citizenry of, of Philippi or for us of the USA. It's the citizenry of those who are part of the gospel community. The gospel community. I don't know if you've ever thought of all of the people who are saved as being part of the gospel community. But that's what he seems to be talking about. And so the, the, the question that I would ask is, why is it such a big deal to live worthy of our place in the gospel community? Well, I think this is the way you need to think of the gospel. The gospel is about a transfer of wealth. A transfer of wealth. The word grace has been has been uh, put into an acronym to define it this way, and I think it, it really helps us here today. God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. The word grace, the actual Greek word, means a gift. Uh, last week was Christmas, and uh, my wife got me exactly what I wanted. A my wife and Dennis Beeman. Thank you, Dennis Beeman. You look kind of like Santa Claus, Dennis. Got the white hair and the white beard. Don't we all these days? Um, if I had just had two holsters to go with them, it's a, a screwdriver and a drill, a pair of DeWalt's with the little 12-volt ion or lithium-ion batteries. Oh, and they're powerful. Whoa. And they're not cheap. But it pales in significance to the gift that God gave us. It's an expensive gift. He has given us forgiveness at the expense of Christ. Christ died on the cross. 
He died as our substitute. Our, salva- our, our sin was placed onto him and God poured out his wrath on him. And because of that, he says, I am able to forgive your sin. Your sin has been paid for at great expense. God has accepted our faith as the only requirement to receive the benefit of that sacrifice. So he he wrote us this huge check called the forgiveness of sins. It's extremely valuable. And now God gives us the instruction. He says, are you living up to how valuable that gift is, that gospel community that you live in? Are you living up to that? Again, we don't do it to earn it. We don't do it to keep it. We do it to say thank you. Does your life demonstrate the wonderful impact of the gospel? Titus 2.10 puts it this way. And and I've summarized what comes earlier in that italics there. We're to live righteously so that we may adorn the doctrine of God. To make it look good. Good. The Apostle Paul was an example of this. He said, I am the least of the apostles. I am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He said, if you want to look at my life and ask the question, did I deserve salvation? Did I deserve to be a servant of God? No way. I was so terrible, I actually persecuted the church of God. In other places, he lays that out, and he actually consented to people being put to death for their their faith. But by the rich gift of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. Nobody looked at the Apostle Paul and said, well, he talks a good game, but his life doesn't show the gospel very much. Can you even imagine that? Everything we know about him, we think, man, this guy was laying his life down time after time. He lived worthy of the great gift he had been given. In my years as a police chaplain, I've known a number of police officers who were fired because of conduct that was either illegal or unethical. Or they quit before they were fired. Those who wear the badge have to live a life worthy of being a law enforcement officer. We know that. We, we expect that. I knew an officer who attempted to hire a prostitute who turned out to be an uncovered police officer. He did not live up to his calling, and he did not live up to his calling as a believer in Christ either. I went to a police briefing one day, and they were talking about an action they were about they were considering taking against a home. It's called drug abatement. It's when your house has been used for so much drug activity that the government says, we're shutting this house up and nobody can ever live here. Or nobody can live here for a period of time, whatever it is. And they're talking, 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 and they're talking about the address. And I think, I think I've been to that house. And I said, does so-and-so and so-and-so live there? Yeah. Yeah, it's their son that we're after. 
members of my church. Imagine how I felt. Here I am, the shining Christian example in the midst of that kind of wickedness. Are you living worthy of the gospel of Christ? You want to have a goal for 2012? You want to have a resolution? Say, oh God, help me to live so that when people look at my life, they say, now that person is a Christian. That person is, is, is showing the grace of God in their life. That person is showing that God is good. Does your behavior adorn the doctrine of God? What about us as a church? As a church, because really this instruction is going to become a group instruction in just a couple of phrases. We need to think about that as a church. Do we as a church, do, do people look here and go, now those people are real followers of Christ. That needs to be a goal for us. God expects us to behave like believers. Number two, God expects us to work as a team. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, that I may hear this about you. I may hear that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. God expects us to work as a team. This passage, this, this instruction, the first instruction in chapter 27 that we just looked at, really introduces the topic all the way down to the middle of chapter 2, where he's going to talk about unity and working together and, and laying down your life for the sake of others. And, and here he, he sets it right out. He expects us to work as a team. The heart of this instruction is the word striving together. In the original language, it's just one word, and the root word is the word athletic. It's the word about team athletics, and then it's coupled with the word together. Together athletics is clearly talking about a team. The Apostle Paul loved to use sports metaphors, and this is a, a clear one. He says, I want you to be working together, and then he strengthens it by saying, I want to hear that you're standing fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together. I mean, it's, he, he, he layers these things up that talk about working together. The phrase one, uh, with one mind is the word for soul. To work together as one soul. Wow, that's a, that's a kind of working together that, that it takes years to develop. Um, when I was in college... We had two guys who played basketball, and they were, I believe, and I'm not a real basketball expert here, so forgive me, but I believe they were both the forwards. They were the two guys on the outside. They would run down the court, and uh, usually one of them had the ball. And one of them went on to be an All-American uh, uh, in the Christian world and, and I think in the small college world as well and play a little bit of pro ball. He was an, an extremely gifted athlete. The other guy was was only about an A minus, you know, and this guy was an A plus. And those guys would run down the court and one of them would go like this and throw the ball and it would go all the way across and the other guy would grab the ball and, and they, just, they just worked together and thought together and it was the most beautiful thing. It was, it, it was athletically beautiful. And, uh, and, and I'm, like I said, I'm not much of an expert on athletics, but I'd watch that and think, oh, that is so cool. How does that happen? It happens by playing together, by practicing together, 
by agreeing together on, on, on how the plays are done, uh, you know, knowing each other, watching each other, being one soul on the team together. These two guys are both uh, quarterbacks, uh, relatively new in the NFL. If you don't know, Jake Locker there from Ferndale on this side. And, uh, and uh, Tim Tebow over here, they're both Christians. And I don't think it's any accident that, that their Christian life does show in this way to their teams. They're always talking about the team. You know, how was your game? Oh, this guy did a great job. Oh, the, the, uh, you know, the offensive line did a wonderful job here for me, and this and that. Always talking about others, always talking about others. The only, this guy here bows down after every good thing that happens and bends his knee and it makes people angry because he's given glory to God. I don't know whether Jake does that or not, but, but uh, you know, these guys are all about the team, the team, the team. Football and church are both team efforts. One man cannot win a football game by himself, no matter how good he is. And no one can do church by themselves. We need Raul to lead the worship, but we need Leanna to project the words and Mike, Mike, that Mike back there to collect the offering. And we need whoever's in the nursery to take care of the infants. And we need Roger to greet in the parking lot and on and on and on. We have to be a team. But if our concern is to be noticed rather than to do the ministry, then we're not, then we're not walking worthy. You see, that's what he's saying here. He says, I want you to walk worthy of the great gospel community to which you are a part of. And the first and foremost way that I want you to be working at it is working together to be a team. If we're more concerned about our way than God's family, we're not walking worthy. If we allow hurts to go unresolved and stop our service to God, we're not walking worthy. Turn over to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to have a little preview here of what's coming in these chapters. The Apostle Paul, this is really rocket science here, I think he knew what he was going to write in chapter 4 when he started writing chapter 1. And I think in chapter 1 he introduces the theme that is going to be really important that addresses a problem in the church. Look at Philippians 4.2. I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you, true companion, probably the pastor of the church, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers. How would you like to forever be known in the Bible as two women that couldn't get along in a church? I mean, that's what they're famous for. We don't know what their squabble was about. But we know neither one of them was doctrinally wrong because when somebody was doctrinally wrong, the Apostle Paul would say, essentially, this guy's a heretic. Or I'm, you know, and we, we don't hear them being condemned as living in some sin that should be put out of the church because in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, now this guy, I'm delivering to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. No, these two women couldn't get along. And the Apostle Paul starts back here in chapter 127, and he says, now listen, folks, 
we are a team. We are one body in Christ, not just First Baptist, but all the believers and all of the true churches in the world. And he says, we need to work that way. We need to work together, one team with one soul. In our church in Tukwila, we, we had two or three buildings. None of them were very big, but one of them used to be the auditorium. And before it was the auditorium, it was a machine shed. And the, the pulpit was over in the corner like this, and there was a window that was about uh, three or four feet high and about six feet long, you know, a big kind of a picture window there. And uh, we were remodeling the building while we were there, and there was some paneling that we took down, and, and there was windows underneath there. We, we, we didn't know there was windows underneath there, until we, or maybe some of the people did. We took this paneling down, and they said, oh, yeah, we had to cover that up years ago because when the pastor would preach on Sunday morning and when the sun would come up in the summer, he would look like Moses coming down from the mountain <laughs> with the glory of the Lord shining all around him. But the part that they laughed about at the time, but it wasn't funny when it happened, was, yeah, the church just about split over whether to cover the windows up or not. Because they were beautiful yellow church glass, and we shouldn't cover them up. It's a beautiful window. And some other people said, no, we can't pay attention because it's so bright. And they argued and fussed, not over doctrine, not over sin and righteousness, but over whether or not to cover up the windows. That's what was going on. Something like that was going on with Yodi and Syntyche. And the Apostle Paul says, look, we're a team. We, we are a team. We need to act like a team. Division, for any reason other than clear doctrinal heresy, or unrepentant sin is wrong because it fails to live up to Christ's command of love and it diverts the energy of ministry. We're to be working together and, catch this, working at working together. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy. There's that same phrase of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring. That's the word that we could translate, working to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Working at, working together. The word keep there means to guard. When you become a Christian, you're put into the body of Christ. There is unity in the body of Christ. There's only one head, and there's all of these members, and Christ is working. But in every little piece of that body, we've got to work to maintain what God has already put there. How do we do it? Well, we could spend several sermons on doing that, but words like forgiveness, patience, prayer, love, went to a conference years ago at a church back east and the pastor said one of the phrases that we repeat often in our church is we're all just growing we really need to look at one another and think in our mind hey we're all just growing you know they aren't perfect i'm not perfect 
We have got to pull together and work together. And the reason we've got to do that is that back in Philippians 1.27 as well. I want to hear that you're working together, striving together for the faith of the gospel or, or carrying the gospel and not being terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation. The third thing that God expects of us that we ought to be aiming for in 2012 is this. God expects us to be spiritually courageous. Look again at verse 28. He says there are adversaries in our life. There are adversaries. Now, I'll be honest with you. When I read like the book of Psalms and David talks about his enemies and praying God's fire and brimstone, to summarize it on them, boy, I, I don't even want to think that way. I don't want to call anybody an enemy. That, that, that just scares me to even give myself the grace to say there is an, that I have an enemy, to somehow think that I, am, I have been so right and they are so wrong. But there is an adversary, not just, not just difficulties that we have around us. There is an adversary, and the word adversary literally means opponent, somebody on the other side with whom you are at odds. And I think this is the answer we need to be looking for. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, your opponent, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, we don't see the devil. If he ever has tempted me personally, I don't know it, or you. We, we, he is a spirit. We cannot see him. Uh, whether or not he can take on a human body, I, I, I suppose that's possible, but even then I wouldn't know it's the devil. But we know he is our adversary, and we know that this is our reality. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And what we understand from these scriptures and others is this. Satan is the ruler of this world. In fact, when he tempted Jesus, he said, he said, he took him up to the high place. I will give you all the authority of the world because it's been given to me and I give it to whomever I want. That's a scary, scary thought. But he rules this world under God's allowance. And so as we think about, we come back to this word conduct or citizenship and we say we're part of the gospel community, but the rest of the world who are not believers in Christ are not part of the gospel community. They are part of the satanically ruled community. Now, I know they aren't worshiping Satan. They don't get up in the morning and think, how can I serve the devil? I understand that. That's what makes it so dangerous. Satan and the wicked spiritual rulers of this age that are under his authority influence the world around us. We, have, we are part of God's world. There is this other world. What form does that opposition take? Well, it takes, first of all, the opposition of, of what we would call a heretic. The, the word heresy means false doctrine. Some heretics are nice. Some of them are mean. When I was in Bible college, we had heretics come to our school on purpose, and heard from them about their perspective on certain doctrinal issues. And in one of the classes I was in, we were allowed to 
go after them a little bit. And uh, just so you know, we never did that well until the final day when the teacher said, now let me tell you what you missed here, boys. And I was always thankful for that. But one of those heretics who came to talk was a denominational official. He was not just a pastor of a church. He was up a a level or two in a well-known mainline denomination. And he laughed at us for believing in the literal, physical resurrection of Christ from the grave. He laughed at us for that. That's what a heretic is. A heretic is a guy who stands up in a church and purports to be a pastor and opens the Bible and then preaches false doctrine. That is one of the greatest oppositions, the greatest adversaries that we face because it comes from within what is called the Christian church. And I know that's a broad statement, but there are adversaries. When we stand up and say, this is the word of God, all of it, 100%, it is authoritative for life. And in fact, if your ideas conflict with these ideas, you are wrong. When we talk that way, there are people out there who say, you're wrong. There are people out there who will oppose us. What other form does it take? It takes the form of of what we call in this world atheists. Now, atheists... I would define this way, not so much as people who don't believe in God, but people who are focused against God. We really should call them anti-theist. The word theist uh, would be a a God believer. Anti is against. Uh, They are the folks who go to the Capitol Mall in the state of Washington and put up a display next to the nativity that was put there And their display says, basically, there is no God, religion is bad for people, and things like that. It has a sign there. Atheist. What other form does this take? It takes the form of what I would call anti-moralist. Anti-moralist don't care anything about the theological or the God discussion. All they want is to live as they please Um, in ways that we would call sinful, and so they fight against Christian doctrine on the basis of them having moral freedom. Uh, Most notably, that has come into our public discussion in the areas of abortion and homosexuality, but also in terms of the marriage discussion and whether or not people get married or who can get married. And, And there are many other issues that go along with that, but they, they, don't, they would almost say, I don't care if you believe in God or not, but don't you tell me about my moral life. And then there, uh, the fourth category I would put here is, is what I would call pluralist. Pluralist are those people who perhaps seem quite nice and maybe who are very nice, but what they believe is this. Everybody can live in harmony if they will just keep to themselves about their own beliefs. You want to believe in Jesus? Believe in Jesus. Go right ahead. Do not tell me about it and do not tell other people about it. Now these are some of the, uh, some of the adversaries that we, pay, that we face. You need to understand that they are being inspired by Satan because Satan doesn't want anything to do with God to have, to have uh, any uh, ability to move forward. The net effect of this opposition is this. In the world, you will have tribulation. Now look back at Philippians 1, and let's ask this question. How does God want us to respond to the adversaries? 
Well, first of all, he says in verse 27, stand fast. Stand fast. And then in verse 28, he says, don't be terrified. The idea of standing fast is sort of a military term where you you take a position, and when the enemy comes, you are determined to stay here. You're not going to run out of fear. Uh, You're going to stand fast. Um, I I think, you know, with the the sports imagery that he is using, I, I think of two lines of football players, and if I had better knees, I would show you how they stand. I, I'm a running back. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> or a split hair or whatever they are out there on the end, you know. <laughs> but they get down and, and they look each other right in the eye. And they, they say foul things to each other and tempting things. Waiting for the conflict to begin. He says, stand fast. Hold your ground. Dig your cleats in and say, this is the line. For us, the line is God's word and it's God's way of life. And we say, no, I'm not going backwards just because you're opposing me. He says, stand fast. And then he says, don't be terrified. Verse 28, don't be terrified. The word terrified here means to be startled. As in, you know, when there's a loud noise and y'all look up. (laughs) I considered shouting. (laughs) Boy, something gets you like that, you know. And one of the ways it was used in ancient Greek would be of a horse that was startled, you know, like that. And the imagery that came to my mind is is how a dog can scare a horse. You know, um, dog barks, yips around, maybe nips at his legs. And the horse is scared of that. But the horse can kick the dog into tomorrow. But sometimes the horse doesn't know that. And so the horse is scared. Well, get away. And the dog is mean and it's aggressive. And God says, don't. Don't be terrified. Don't be startled. Stand your ground. You see, when we are tempted... Oh, did we get a... There we go. When we're tempted to be startled and run off, we have to remember this. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You're the horse, and the dog is nipping at your heels... You need to look him right back in the eye and say, buddy, take a hike or I'll kick you into tomorrow. Now, there's a sense in which we don't fight the devil. I understand that. The scripture says, resist him and he will flee. So all of this, forgive me, but foolishness you see on TV about praying limits onto the demons and all that stuff, that's baloney. All you have to do is stand there. You stand there with the word of God in your life, with the people of God around you. That's what Philippians 1 is saying. Listen, you're a team. Stand your ground. And what happens when Christians do that? The gates of Hades cannot prevail. The dog cannot win. If we cut and run out of fear, 
the devil wins. If we turn our fighting inward on each other, the devil wins. If we quake in fear and then do nothing in the Lord's work out of fear to avoid persecution, the devil wins. We have to envision ourselves arm in arm with the body of Christ standing our ground. The choir, I think, had a chance to to experience this in a very small way, and dare I say in a way that was in some ways not very fearful or scary, but it could have ruined the ministry. And we've talked to you about this before. I'm going to share with you again, especially for those who weren't here, but the choir went, and and I'm not going to name all the names because this is being recorded and will be on the Internet, and I want to be very gracious But the choir went to a place where the culture is pagan, okay? And I mean, they they literally worship things of the earth. And because of that, their culture is very different than ours. So we went there to sing and and to share the gospel. And it was mayhem in the room for 40 minutes while we sang. And the mayhem got worse, and the noise got louder, when Steve and Linda Wilkins were reading a piece about Jesus Christ and who he is. But the choir stood fast. We stood there and delivered it and were not distracted. And the Lord caused us to not be terrified to not be distracted. Boy, there was one time in the middle of that when a person was running around about three feet from me and I just, boy, it was all I could do not to turn and look and say something stupid like I say sometimes. I said, no, stay on target here. Just let it be. Let the Lord use this. Now, that's just a picture to me of what Satan is doing in general when two Pastors in the Middle East get put in jail just for being Christian pastors. Satan is trying to get the rest of their congregation to go, oh, we can't do anything. Let's run away and hide. Let's be exiles. Now, I, I don't begrudge them. I don't begrudge them their safety. I'm in no position to criticize. I'm just telling you that that's what Satan wants. He's over here going, Arr! And God says, when that happens, you just stand put. Stand still and see the deliverance of the Lord. One author put it this way, the Christian life is not a playground, it's a battleground. And you know, the real problem in our main, in our, in our, in the, in the main of, evangelic, of the evangelical world is this. We've gotten the idea in our mind that if we do everything right, everybody will like us. Nobody will oppose us. If somebody's opposing us, we must have done something wrong. We've got to change things. We've got to quit saying some things. No, folks. When you say everything right, that that is when the devil is going to take attention. His people are going to pay attention to you. And we have to be set for the battle. 
And that's why the last instruction God gives us is this. God expects us to embrace persecution. God expects us to embrace persecution. For to you, verse 29, it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. The endurance of believers in the face of persecution demonstrates the greatness of God as our keeper. See, the first thing that we need to understand is this, that that persecution demonstrates the reality of salvation. Thank you. One author put it this way, the very fact that they endure is evidence that God has done a supernatural work in their hearts. Iola Boyer, if you haven't met her, she's over here, retired missionary, worked in Africa for many years. One of the, one of the products of her ministry and of that of her fellows is a, a guy named Timothy Sadu, and he, he was here and spoke to us a couple of years ago. And he told about the persecution that he has suffered. One of the things was them trying to electrocute him by putting voltage to a couple of microphones so that when he would grab them and pull them over to sit at a desk and speak on the radio, he would be electrocuted. And uh, he said, the only thing that kept me from dying was that I was shaking so violently they unplugged from the wall. And what do you suppose he did after that? He got right back on the radio and just kept preaching the same thing. Now, when you see that, what do you think about him? What do you think? Do you think, wow, there's a courageous, real Christian? Yeah, that's what I think. I think, man, I I hope I can be that way if the Lord calls me to that kind of thing. You see, the reality of salvation is demonstrated by persecution. The devil growls, and we either run, and he and the people around us go, well, I guess Christianity is not that deep in their family. Or we stand our ground, and the devil flees, and the Lord's work goes forward. Suffering for Christ is a privilege. Boy, I, you know, I'm really not excited about preaching this because the Lord usually gives me a chance to practice. This verse is completely opposite of the mindset of American Christianity. I can't speak for the rest of the world. But look here. If you are reproached for the name of Christ... Blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, on the part of the adversaries, he is blasphemed or spoken poorly of, but on your part, he is glorified. Wow. Suffering for Christ is a privilege. Number three, suffering for Christ will be rewarded. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, again, for us American Christians, a reward in heaven isn't that great as a reward on earth. And we tend to be a little short-sighted. And we want our rewards right now. And God said, now you be patient, and I'm going to take care of you. (sighs) Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that I can hear that you are standing fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, not terrified by the adversary, but suffering for Christ and glorifying him. That's the kind of fellow you want on your side, not on the other side. His name is Lieutenant Carl Lieutenant Colonel Carl Tranker. Does anybody know why I put his picture up there? You read the news? This fella had a piece of jewelry, and they'd made contact on Craigslist to sell it. It was his wife's. And he went and met some people in a parking lot to sell the jewelry. And their purpose was to rob him and not pay anything. And so they apparently got a hold of the jewelry and then set off running. Well, what do you think <laughs> Lieutenant Colonel Tranker did? He's a Marine, by the way. He's running after him. Bang! He said, I was only shot once. I didn't think that was too bad. He's running after him. Bang! Bang! They shot him again. So you know what he did? He put his fingers in the hole and took himself to the hospital. Yeah. He said, I just did what I was trained to do. Okay. (laughs) What? Imagine our football line again here, folks. Here you are. And the devil rears up and he puts a couple of holes in you. Are you going to plug the holes and get stuff taken care of? Or are you going to go, oh, I can't play anymore. I'm done. It's over. I'm running away. That's courage. But courage for a gold necklace? A few dollars? Even the principle of being robbed. We're in a spiritual battle for the eternal souls of mankind. We need to pull together, stand together against all spiritual opposition for the sake of the gospel and our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Heavenly Father, help us to take on these resolutions that you want for us today. It's not easy. to be courageous when the enemy is trying to scare us. Make it so. Today, this week, this year, help us to see those fear tactics and help us to say, no, I'm going to stand fast. I'm going to be courageous in the Lord with my teammates. And we 
are going to go forward and the gates of hell will not prevail. I pray in Christ's name, amen.